fact, there's a hyperbole there in Scripture. I think y'all can hear me now. <laughs> there, there was a point of hyperbole there uh, where theoretically, although there's no evidence of it ever being practiced, okay, the argument was that so different was this man, he could marry either his sister or his mother. It's hyperbole. didn't happen. Do you know, hear what they're saying, though? He was such a different person. He wasn't connected to the person he was before. Any debts that they had before that, Before that baptism, those debts were forgiven. Oh, by the way, any money owed to them was forgiven debt as well because that person no longer existed. He was not just a changed man. He was a different man, which, by the way, is the background for Romans 6. And we're going to get to that here in just a few minutes. But Jewish baptism from Gentile to Jew, proselyte baptism, different person. Then we get John the Baptist. John, as we know, preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. This here in Luke 3, 3, it's reiterated by Paul in Acts 19, 4, if you just want to make a note of that. Um, Now, John's baptism, there are some scholars who very clearly see that John the Baptist modeled his baptism off of Jewish proselyte baptism. Some say that it was modeled after the Essenes that were at Qumran. Um, You ever heard of the Qumran scrolls or otherwise known as the Dead Sea Scrolls? This was the group that had actually preserved those writings that were found back in the early turn of the last century. Um, They were a covenant community. They were very uh, eschatological, very much focused on uh, the last days, last time. They lived a very austere, ascetic life. But there's things in their writings, in those scrolls that were found, that talk about... um, daily immersions that they did as a ceremonial cleansing. And in fact, in the first Qumran scroll, chapter 2, verse 3, states that internal repentance must accompany the external act. Hear anything like that from Scripture? I'm sure you have somewhere in Acts, right? It also states that only a full member of the community could practice that and then only after a two-year probationary period where they were being brought into the community. But you know what was different about John's baptism from Jewish proselyte baptism? The big difference? John was baptizing Jews. See, it's the first time in history that Jews were acknowledging a personal need for forgiveness of sin. And today, many Jews feel like they're still the chosen one because they're under the covenant of Abraham. They have no need for a cross. They have no need for a savior because they are sons and daughters of Abraham. Proselytes, yes. 
They absolutely, they need a baptism, but, but not Jews. And you see, that was the radical thing about John. Is he's baptizing Jews. So what is different about Christian baptism, the baptism of Christ, from Jewish baptism and from John's baptism? Well, they're on your sheet. Jewish baptism was a change of nationality. They went from being non-Jew to being Jew, Gentile to Jew. John's baptism is he was baptizing Jews. That's the big thing. For repentance and forgiveness of sin, but there is no salvation implied in that baptism. And in Christian baptism, what Jesus instituted, we have this fundamental change that reflects some of that Jewish proselyte baptism. It is a baptism of forgiveness and a baptism of repentance. And it's also a baptism where you are assured of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and God's salvation and the world to come. In fact, it's been said that there are two places today where we come in contact with the blood of Christ. One is in communion, that act that we just did, and the other is in baptism. Now, give me a second here. I'm going to give you a very short word study, but it's a good one, so stick with me and write this down. There are two words that I want you to know that involve that idea of baptism. The first one is bapto. It comes up in the scripture three times, and it is a term that means to dip, just a simple dip in and out. There are three scriptures that I wrote down there for you. Uh, John 3, 16, Luke 16, I mean John 13, Luke 16, Revelation 19. We're going to come back to these in just a moment. Bapto is the root word, verb, the root word of the verb baptizo, which occurs in scripture 80 times as a verb. If you add the noun forms in, it's about 120 times that's there. And it is to deep repeatedly, to immerse and to emerge. It is a intensified form of bapto. The Greeks used to use this word of things like to sink a ship. If a ship is sunk, it is baptizo. It is down, it is out. Or to sink in the mud, or to drown, or to perish. Now, the Greek language has perfectly good words for what we call sprinkle, rontizo, and pour, uh, ekio. Neither of those are ever used for Christian baptism. The only one that's used is that intensified form of plunging and pulling out. Now, you can say, well, that's just a matter of semantics. That's just a matter of of a form. And I would say, I made the mistake of saying that to my dad one time. For those of you who don't know, my dad was a Greek scholar. He taught uh, at Atlanta Christian College for over over 25, 26 years and, and was active in ministry for another 26 years. But I had this conversation with my dad one point. 
And um, there was a point in time where at First Christian in Johnson City, there, there was a, uh, a Presbyterian church that was convulsing because of um, strife within the Presbyterian USA church that was happening back 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And Methodist church there, rather large, that there was some infidelity issues within the, the, the staff on uh, in that church, and both of them were convulsing at the seams, and we had people that were coming over to First Christian, and this issue of baptism came up. And um, th- th- those two groups f- d- recognize immersion as a legitimate form, but they also recognize other forms of baptism. And I'm talking with my dad about this, and I'm saying, you know, well, is there a gray line here at all? And um, Basically, he said, there's no such thing as a baptism by pouring because that's not the word. There's not a baptism by sprinkling because that's not the word. The word that is used in scripture is very consistently the word baptizo. Now, you can have a rite of passage by some other means, but you can't call it a baptism because it's a very specific word that's used in scripture you see baptism is making pickles James Strong in his exhaustive concordance gives us a very clear example of the difference between the word bapto and the word baptize or baptizo and it comes from Nicander a Greek poet and physician who lived in the third century before Christ, in the 200s. And we have this beautifully written little recipe for how to make pickles. In fact, what he says is the vegetable, uh, once it is prepped, should be bapto, should be dipped into boiling water. Well, what do you call that? Ladies, you, you, you cut up broccoli. You want to make sure that the color holds. And before you cook it, you, you plunge it down in, into boiling water for just a couple of seconds and pull it back out. What, what do we call that? Blanching. Okay, so he's talking about babto is blanching that vegetable. And then you baptizo that vegetable in the vinegar solution where it stays in there. And fundamentally changes. Yes? Both verbs concern an immersion of vegetables in a solution. But the first, babto, is temporary. The second, the act of baptizing that vegetable produces a permanent change. Dr. Myron Taylor, um, great scholar, preacher uh, out in California, uh, Westwood Christian Church for a number of years, um, one of the best preachers of this last generation within our brotherhood. You may have never heard of him, but he's a wonderful, wonderful man. Dr. Taylor would say that baptism is a preformative act. In other words, there was a change that took place. Something significant occurred. It is Rabbi Halil's point 
that when that person underwent baptism and went from being Jew, non-Jew, Gentile to being a Jew, that they were not just a changed man, they were a different man. Three places in the scripture where bapto is used, John 3, uh, 13, 26. Uh, John 13, 26, it's, it's the Lord's Supper. It's the, the, that last Passover meal. Jesus says, the one who will betray me is the one I give the sop to. And he takes the bread and he sticks it into the sop and he hands it to who? To Judas, right? Okay, bapto is the word that's there. You know what you get when you take a piece of bread and you dip it in gravy? You know what comes out? It comes out a piece of bread with gravy on it. Okay. Luke 16, 24, Lazarus, Jesus is telling this wonderful parable, one of the clearest, one of the clearest things in scripture about the nature of heaven and hell, and Jesus tells us in a parable, okay, uh, Lazarus, poor man, uh, outside a rich man's gate, rich man ignores him, Lazarus dies, rich man dies, Lazarus is gathered to the bosom of Abraham, which is a euphemism for what we call heaven. And the rich man is down in a place of torment where there's fire. And the rich man says, can you please just have Lazarus dip his finger in, in water and touch my tongue with the drop that comes from it just so I can have a little relief. You remember what Father Abraham says in the parable? The chasm is too great. There is no way to cross it. But the word there is the word Bapto. Lazarus dicks his finger in the water. You know what it comes out? Comes out a wet finger. Okay? Revelation 19, 13, we have this wonderful metaphor of a white robe that's been dipped in blood and it comes out and it is blood stained, right? There's an idea of that idea of the salvation of Christ. We'll talk about that sometime when we're in Revelation. But there it's the word bapto again. The robe that gets dipped in the blood, when it comes out, you know what it is? It's a bloody robe or a bloody garment. But if you baptizo a person into Christ, you know what you get? You get a new creature. You get a fundamental change. There is a change in state and in condition and the sin is no more. Maybe this will help. Um, got a couple people in here who've been married before. Yes. Can I get an amen? Been married? Amen. A few of you. You know, before you actually made that commitment to get married, what did you do? You went out, you spent time together, you, you, you came into a relationship, you developed a love, a fondness for each other, and then you made the decision to get married. Are you married at that point? No. At some point, you went under, underwent a ceremony, and maybe it was in a church like this, and you came down the aisle, uh, groom here, um, bride coming down the aisle, 
And then there is a, a, a statement, a ceremony that happens. And under the eyes of the state, in the eyes of, of uh, our Lord, those two are joined in holy matrimony, and the two become one. Yes? And you know what? You can walk back down that aisle after that ceremony and not feel a bit different. But something has fundamentally changed in those moments. Can I get an amen? Because life after that point is different. It's a changed state. You go from being two single people to being two that will be united and are united as one. This is the problem with sexual sin. Scripture teaches us that when we unite ourselves with someone who is not our mate, we divide ourselves. And when you do that with multiple people, you divide yourself multiple ways. Because something happens. It's a fundamental change. Now that marriage ceremony is there because it marks the point at which that change took place when you became married. Baptism marks our uniting our lives with Christ. Now there's a lot that goes on before that. Before we make that commitment, and friend, there's going to be a whole lot of changes afterward, right? But that baptism is the benchmark that Jesus gave us to mark our transition into his family. Romans 6, I told you I'd get back over here. Starting at verse 3, Paul writes, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in, what's the phrase? In newness of life, new creature. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self has been crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we are no longer slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. And Paul's using this this baptism as a metaphor of, of dying to that old life and being raised in a different life. How does that happen? I got three words for you. Do you know what it is? I don't know. But I know it is. And I know it does. Romans 6, 5, also, Paul tells us very clearly right there that baptism is what gives us a hope of resurrection. You may have heard 
somebody repeating Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you'll be saved. That's true. But in the context, that follows Romans 6. And in the greater context, Romans 10, 9, and 10 is not a salvation passage. Because the whole book is written to a committed group of Christians in Romans where Paul is explaining his theology to them. He's writing to already baptized believers. You see that even in Romans 6 as the way it's written. When you were, right? You see, in context, Romans 10, 9, and 10 does not negate baptism. It's actually a reflection of what Paul's already said. You see, Paul had a very high view of baptism. When he's talking about what Ananias said to him after that Damascus Road experience where where Ananias came to tell him more about God, he says in Acts 22.16 that Ananias said to him, Paul, hope of the resurrection, and now what are you waiting for? Get up. Be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name, calling on the name of the Lord. It reflects that idea in Acts 2.38, which is a salvation passage. You look at the context of that speech. Paul, Peter is talking to those who are not in Christ and telling them how to come into Christ. In fact, as he tells them that Jesus was the Messiah and you killed him, they were cut to the heart, pricked, some translations say, and they asked, what must we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of of your sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children, and for all who are fall off, for all whom call on our Lord. Repent and action. I got a question for you. If Paul did not have a high view of baptism, if he didn't believe in the efficacy of it, then why would he write in Galatians 3.26, why would he say, you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Do you hear what he's saying? What, what is it when you clothed yourself? This morning when you grabbed your coat before you went out, what did you do? You put on that coat as a protection from the cold, right? That's the same idea. It's in baptism where we clothe ourselves with Christ. Where we come a part of his body. And friend, according to scripture... Without baptism, we can't claim to be part of Christ's body. Now, you may have the question, do you have to be baptized in order to join the church? Well, it's not a simple answer. It's really a a yes or no, depending on what your definition of church is. If your definition of church is that ecclesia, that gathering of the body of Christ, those who have been baptized into him and becoming part of that body and and a family, Paul would say yes, absolutely. 
But if by church you mean a social club or an organization or a building, then no, because that's not what Scripture teaches. It's not baptism into the church. It's baptism into Christ. And the church is a gathering of those who are in Christ. Baptism is really not an initiation rite. Baptism is a sealing of a covenant of adoption. Again, in Romans, Romans 8, 15, he uses that language. You became sons when you were adopted in. We'll look at the idea of covenant on a different day. I'm just trying to give you a quick overview. But just think about it. If Jesus' final words before he ascended into heaven, Jesus told his closest friends, do you remember what he said? He said, I want you to go into all the world and I want you to make disciples of all nations and I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want you to teach them about everything that I have commanded you. You know where that is, don't you? That's what Matthew what? Matthew 28, 19, and 20, right? That's why on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 men were baptized into Christ. Why they responded to the message that Peter gave. Acts 2.41 said, Those who accepted the message were baptized and 3,000 were added. Friend, if Jesus would have said, I want you to go make disciples and then march them around the building seven times. Or if he said... Go and make disciples and give them a thousand dollars. Or if he said, I want you to go and make disciples and tell them that they have to fast for a week. If he had said any of that, that is what we would tell people to do because that would be what he commanded. But it wouldn't make any sense. But when you stop to think about it, friend, What Jesus said makes lots of sense. When he said, I want you to go make disciples and baptize them, it makes a huge sense because of the beautiful symbol that has happened. And that baptism symbolizing our death to sin and our burial with Christ and our future resurrection with him. It symbolizes cleaning. In 1 Peter 3.21, it says that baptism saves us not by removing the dirt from the body, but by the pledge or the response of a good conscience before God. And then he says it's Christ in the waters. It's Christ resurrected that saves. Now, friends... If Jesus submitted himself to baptism, and if his last instructions on earth were about baptism, and if 3,000 men were baptized into Christ on that very first day of the church, and the Holy Spirit has made sure that these accounts are preserved for us in the Bible, that means that baptism is important to Christ. 
Therefore, it should be important to us as well. Let me ask you this. Is obedience necessary? Fathers, mothers, you have children. Is it necessary that they do what you tell them to do? Oh, by the way, most of the time when you tell them something to do or not to do, what is it for? It's for their protection. Yes? Bosses, do you expect those that are in your employ to do what you have told them to do? Yes. We've talked about the word Lord, curios. It means someone that has undisputed possession of a person or a thing. And if you think about it, calling Jesus Lord is a very personal statement. Walter Scott, one of the fathers of our movement, said that for him, for Jesus to be Lord, means that I have to hear and believe and confess and be baptized and then try to live my life through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That there's this process that we go through. If he is Lord, then he has total possession of us and he has the right to tell us what to do. Oh, and by the way, by the time I get to this point when I'm talking to an individual and we've been talking about baptism and maybe it's been an hour or two, there's been more of an exchange, I often point out, you know, we spend a whole lot more time arguing about it than it takes to do it. And even this morning, we spent a lot more time thinking about it than it takes to just do it. And if you look in Scripture, there are so few things that Jesus specifically tells us to do that he asks of us. Why fight it? If nothing else, it's simple obedience. But it's far more than that. Okay, I want to ease up on you for just a minute. I want you to pull out that connection card that you have that's in your your bulletin there. If you haven't had a chance to put your name and your email on it, I want you to take it out. Everybody, please write your name and your email on there. I'm going to fill mine out right now. If you're visiting with us and you want to give us a little bit more information, feel free to do that. Um, if you're a first-time guest, why don't you mark that, that as first time and, and take that card with you. There's a table out here in the lobby that has a red, uh, Oakland Drive Christian Church red um, tablecloth on it. We have a gift out there for you. You can just drop your card in the, the basket that's out there and uh, pick up one of the books that's there, pick up a Bible that's there. Be very much uh, happy for you to take that along with you, if you would. Uh, You notice on the back, a verse maybe most of y'all already have memorized, Acts 2, 38, 39. If you're willing to do that, or read the chapter, read Romans 6, in light of what we've talked about today. I think that chapter will make a whole lot more sense to you. But read that this week. If you are going to take one of those two steps, mark it here. And then on the bulletin, write 
uh, those verses on your bulletin so you can take it with you. Uh, Bible reading plans are out on the coffee counter if you'd like to, to read through the New Testament with us this year. Uh, they are out there. Ladies, there's been 17 ladies that I know of who have signed up for the meeting this week. Uh, starting tomorrow, uh, Faith Bound Bible Study. If you have not signed up already, mark it here. We'll make sure Gina uh, gets your, your name so she can get you appropriate materials. Um, you have any request, prayer request, or anything, write it on there. And we will collect these during the final song when we pick up um, offerings. Uh, people that are uh, our guests, you know, give your offerings wherever it is that you may happen to go. Uh, but the offering time is really for, uh, you don't feel like you're obligated to put anything in. That's really for our members here. Um, People are being baptized into Christ almost every week throughout the world, throughout our nation. Some of those are coming and they're making an initial commitment to Christ. Some of those may have grown up in a church that did not honor the New Testament baptism by immersion. Now, I'm not saying that they haven't put on faith, that they haven't been, been trying to, to live for Christ that they haven't repented of their sin. In fact, that's often what has done and that they love the Lord. It's just that they were never taught that baptism in the New Testament was by immersion so that it would symbolize the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. And it is where we come into and we clothe ourselves with Christ. And so, as any obedient child of God would do when they come to clarity and truth, they act in honor of the one they call Lord. Now, some who come may have gone through a meaningless ritual at some point in the past, or they realized that they were baptized by a parent long before they could put their own faith in Jesus as Lord. And so they respond to Christ now because of their own faith, just as God desires. And you know what I like about all of those responses? They reflect exactly the attitude that a person would have if they had made Jesus Lord of their life. Friend, my prayer for every one of you is that you will come to know the love of the Christ, that you will believe in him, that you'll put your trust in him, and that you will take him as your savior and make him Lord of your life. I'm going to close on the words of Ananias as stated by Paul. And now, what are you waiting for? Be baptized. Wash away your sins. Calling on his name. Father God, we thank you for Ananias. And we thank you for Paul and for Peter for John and Mark and Luke, for those that we read who have experienced life with you and with those first disciples that you taught. And we thank you, Father, for the clarity that comes in Scripture. 
We thank you for this time, Lord, this time of decision, this time of reflection. Pray, Father, that you will hear our hearts. And we pray, Father, that even though we know that we are lost in our sin without Christ, we pray for thanksgiving for the love and the mercy that you show.